And I encourage you to take your Bibles now and turn them to 2 Timothy, to Timothy, Paul's second letter to Timothy, and we are going to be jumping into chapter 2, picking up where we left off last week. And this evening we'll be looking at verses 3 through 7, but to give us a bit of context, because I will be referencing verses 1 and 2 throughout the sermon, I want to read verses 1 through 7 for us. So let me do that now, reminding you as ever, brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Beloved of God, the word of the Lord is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So let's ask him now to illuminate our minds together by the Holy Spirit. Sovereign Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you. For your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we acknowledge that you are light, and that by your light do we ourselves, as your creatures, see light. And so we ask, Lord, that you would now teach us from your word, for it is our heritage forever and the joy of our hearts. So incline our hearts, we ask now, to perform your law forever, even to the end. Uphold us, we pray according to your promise that we may live and let us not be put to shame in you who are our hope. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and for his sake. Amen. Well, again, as we've been going through this second letter to Timothy, we've seen again and again that, or been reminded of it again and again, that uh, Paul is writing this to Timothy, understanding that his time on earth is drawing to a close. He's imprisoned in Rome under Nero, and he knows that he's not going to be released. This is going to be the end of the line. And so he sees himself very much passing the baton on to Timothy, his young protege. And so again and again, we see Paul exhorting Timothy to be faithful in that. That which Paul has received from Christ has now been passed on to Timothy, and and he is to guard that. We actually see that in uh, chapter 1, verse 14, those very words. Paul tells Timothy, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And we saw that, that part of the way that Timothy is to guard that good deposit, to guard the gospel, we saw this in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, is he is to entrust what he's heard in the presence of many witnesses, the gospel, to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 
So part of the way that he guards the gospel is by entrusting it to other faithful men who will then entrust it to other faithful men all throughout the years down to today as we stand here and hear the good deposit laid before us tonight. But there's another way now that Paul tells Timothy he is also to guard the good deposit. And maybe we could say that, that as a result of guarding the good deposit, something's going to happen. And what's going to happen is he is going to suffer. Timothy is going to suffer as he carries out this gospel ministry. If he does so faithfully, the flesh and the world and the devil will hate that. And so there will be opposition and there will be suffering. And and so what Paul is really telling Timothy here in verse 3 is he's saying, share in my sufferings. Timothy, let us suffer together. And we know that because Paul uses the exact same Greek word here in chapter 2 of verse 3 as he did back in chapter 1 and verse 8. He says, therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So it's clear that suffering is going to be a part of the nature of gospel ministry. But what exactly is that going to look like for Timothy? Well, we already know the, the close relationship between Paul and Timothy. So we know that in Paul... Timothy has a living, breathing example of what that suffering is going to look like. But here in verses 3 through 7, Paul also gives Timothy three illustrations from three different vocations, telling him this is what suffering for the gospel is going to look like. This is what it's going to require of you. And so if you look there, first of all, in verses 3 and 4, you see that he says you are to suffer as a good soldier. A soldier suffers, but he is devoted to the one who's enlisted him. He's devoted to the cause for which he fights, and so he suffers. Paul also says, secondly to Timothy, that he is to suffer as a competitive athlete. We see that in verse 5. He says, no one wins the prize unless they compete according to the rules. And it's going to require you to suffer in order to legitimately compete and win. And then thirdly and finally, he says, Timothy, you're going to have to suffer as a hardworking farmer. We see that in verses 6 and 7. He says, you're going to have to labor. You're going to have to toil in order to see the abundant harvest. And so it's my prayer brothers and sisters, that that you would understand this is what you ought to expect of of us as gospel ministers first and foremost. The life of a pastor is not a life of ease. It's not to be semi-retirement. It's to be a life of of labor. And brothers and sisters, I, I pray that you understand this isn't just for Timothy. It's not just for gospel ministers. It's for all of us. All of us as followers of Christ are called to suffer in similar ways. And so I pray that we would understand that and that we would then be willing to suffer and that our motive to do so would be because of the one who has so lovingly and graciously suffered for us in our place, even the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look first then at how Paul tells Timothy he needs to be prepared to suffer as a good soldier. Look at verse 3 with me again. Share in suffering... 
as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now, if you're familiar with Paul's epistles throughout the New Testament, then you know that military language, the life of a soldier is a metaphor that Paul likes to frequently employ. He likes to compare it to gospel ministry, what it means to to live faithfully as, as a Christian. And so you'll recall back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18, he tells Timothy to do what? He tells him to fight the good faith. Fight it, Timothy. Fight it as you've seen me fight it. And then in Philemon 2 and Philippians chapter 2, verse 25, he refers to Archippus and Epaphroditus as what? He says, you are fellow soldiers with me. So again, he's, he's using this military language. And of course, probably most of the, the young people in the room are thinking, what about the armor of God? Right? And they, they literally make these sets, these toy sets that are the armor of God. Have you seen this? My son got it for Christmas, and he thinks it's the coolest thing ever. Right? So the Lord is, uh, Paul in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, likens a soldier's armor to the spiritual weapons that Christ has given us to employ as we are storming the gates of hell as the church. And so Paul's very fond of of using this language, and frankly, I think it's brilliant on his part. Because I'm guessing that that most of the men in the room, if not all of the men in the room, their ears perked up a little bit when I was talking about war or battle. And if that didn't happen for all the older men in the room, I guarantee you it happened for the younger men in the room. Because young men are, are captivated by this. I can't tell you how many times I've read to my son, Benjamin, he's six, um, and he's only six, but I've read it to him scores of times by his request, this uh, retelling of St. George attacking, you know, the dreaded dragon that is causing the lovely Una and her family all of these difficulties. And he almost gets destroyed by the dragon again and again, but he, he goes back and fights until he finally defeats it. And my son loves that. And I think we we love this battle language. It's a great way to inspire men to greatness is because God wired us for this, to to fight, to protect that which is lovely against that which is wicked and evil. And what's always true of, of heroic, inspiring stories of battle like that is that the main character can only be a good soldier if he is willing to suffer whatever pain and loss is necessary in order to vanquish evil. And Paul is making this comparison to show that even as a soldier is willing to suffer for king and country, or for the cause, or for his beloved, gospel ministers like Timothy must be armed with the same mindset. That what I am fighting for is so worthwhile that it is worthy of me sacrificing my own life. It's that good. It's that true. It's that beautiful. Because if you're not convinced of that, then you won't pay the price. You'll you'll bail when there's any cost involved. And of course, what are gospel ministers and we as Christians fighting for? For our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For the good news of what he has done in his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension to reconcile those who were lost to himself. What is more glorious or great than that? Now, to further elaborate on what this suffering looks like for a soldier, Paul goes on in verse 4 to describe what a soldier's aim is, what his goal is. So look at verse 4 with me. Paul says, No soldier 
gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Now, what is Paul getting at here? He's saying very clearly that a good soldier has one aim and one aim alone. He single-mindedly, wholeheartedly focuses on the job that he has to do, right? There's a chain of command and he's at the bottom of it. And so he is given orders and he is to go out and do it. Ours is not to do or question why. Ours is but to do and die. That's what the soldier's life is. And, and this isn't just true of soldiers. I think most of you in this room probably know this. In order to succeed in anything, you've got to have laser-like focus, don't you? You have to be able to drown everything else out, any other concerns that you have, and focus on whatever your task is. And so it's that kind of focus that creates a Michael Jordan in the world of basketball, or a Tiger Woods in the realm of golf, or a Mozart when it comes to the composition of music, or indulge me a little bit, a Warren Buffett when it comes to investing. Each of these men were single-mindedly devoted to their craft, to the exclusion sometimes in an odd way of a bunch of other things that that were pretty good. And what Paul is saying is that a good gospel minister is to be focused like that. Like someone who's good at their craft, like a, a, a soldier. And their focus isn't ultimately on their skill. Their focus is ultimately on Christ himself, who is the captain of their salvation, the captain of their soul. And so Timothy's aim above all else is to please Christ. That's to be his focus. And what Paul is saying in verse 4 is that because that's to be the aim of a gospel minister, it excludes a lot of good things in life. That's why he says at the beginning of verse 4, look there again, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Now, in Paul's day, when Timothy was reading this, what would have immediately probably come to Timothy's mind is the reality that for most of the Roman Empire... If you were going to serve in the Roman army as a Roman soldier, you were forfeiting the privilege of marrying. You would would be conscripted for probably 20 to 25 years, and during that time, you were not allowed to get married. And do you know why you weren't allowed to get married? Because as you're serving out on the battlefield, they didn't want there to be a second thought, a, a moment's hesitation, what about my wife and kids? What's going to happen to them? You might not be as quick to jump into action. There might be more hesitation if you're thinking about those things. And so the Romans said, we're not going to allow you to have that temptation. We're not going to allow for familiar, familial entanglements to keep you from being the soldier that Rome needs you to be. Now, I want to make sure nobody makes a weird connection here to what I'm saying. I am not saying that Paul is saying that gospel ministers shouldn't be married. That's what Roman Catholics think. That is not what Protestants think. Um, I think Timothy, uh, Paul is abundantly clear in his first letter to Timothy that, that the expectation is that most office holders, elders and deacons and gospel ministers, will in fact be married. That's why it's, he addresses that in those qualifications. So then what's Paul's point here? His point is that if King Jesus, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, has conscripted Timothy to serve as a gospel minister, 
to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And a good soldier doesn't get distracted by all the things that a civilian might get distracted by. Then that's not to be their focus. You can't make your focus this or that as a gospel minister, like might be the, the freedom of another Christian, but it is to be that you are to focus on what Christ has given you to do. That is to be what consumes you. That is what is to be your focus. And so the gospel minister is to labor in preaching and praying and pastoring and leading Christ's church because that's what Christ has commanded him to do. He's not to get distracted by another vocation unless he absolutely has to. For instance, if the church couldn't pay him full time. And he's also not to get distracted from what his marching orders are from Christ. He's not supposed to, to be a program director. It's not what he's called by Christ to be. Or a therapist. Or a celebrity. What is he? He is God's mouthpiece in a dark world, to speak the light of the gospel, the light of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ to everyone that he comes into contact with. And he shouldn't veer from that even one degree for something lesser. That's the life of a soldier. That's the life of a gospel minister. Now, I know I've primarily applied this to gospel ministers, and in context that that makes a lot of sense, but it also applies to the church in general. We are all as believers to live as good soldiers because, brothers and sisters, we are not our own. We belong to another. And we all have marching orders to live for the glory of God as we submit to his word. And as good soldiers of Christ Jesus, we all need to be armed with the mindset, the the reality that we will suffer. We will suffer because, again, what what Paul is telling Timothy here is, listen, Christ suffered, I suffer, and so Timothy, you will suffer as well. This is part of, of being a part of the people of God in a fallen world. It's been that way ever since the fall. The seed of the serpent harassing and attacking the seed of the woman, unbelievers attacking believers. And so we need to arm ourselves with that mindset. Don't be surprised by it but rather endure and fight the good fight, knowing for whom we fight. Who is it that we fight for? The one who loved us enough to give his life for us, that we might be reconciled to God himself. And all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And he is with you always, even to the end of the age. So go, (laughs) knowing he's with you, knowing that Christ will win the battle. We fight in that confidence. When Christ comes back, we know that the battle will be ours. So Paul says, first, we are to be prepared to suffer as good soldiers. That's what he tells the Timothy. That's what he tells the gospel ministers and us as believers. And secondly, he says that we are to suffer as a competitive athlete. What a great analogy on Super Bowl Sunday, huh? It all connects. It all connects. But look at verse five with me. Paul says an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. Now, in many ways, this is very similar to the the soldier analogy, isn't it? It's very similar. Because like the good soldier who fights to please his superior and to win the battle, so too the good athlete competes in accord with the rules 
in order to be crowned the victor. And that's exactly what Paul is getting at here. The soldier and the athlete understand that they will suffer and pay various costs in order to succeed. As a matter of fact, in the ancient world, there was a requirement in order for you to compete in the Olympic Games. The Roman soldier analogy is from the the Roman time period. This is hearkening back to the Greek Empire. And in order to compete in the Olympic Games, you had to engage in prescribed, rigorous, physical discipline for 10 months. And then at the end of those 10 months, you had to stand before a statue of Zeus and swear that you had completed that training. I swear that I, it was to, to elevate the level of gamesmanship, right? If you require this of absolutely everybody, then the competition is going to be, be really, really great. And that was the whole point of the games, was to please the God. So this is how you competed according to the rules. In other words, you had to engage in serious discipline in order to compete at this level. And if you didn't, you weren't playing by the rules, and therefore you couldn't win. So again, like a a soldier's life, the life of an athlete isn't easy. Comfort is not your top priority if you're going to be an athlete, not if you're going to be a good one. You could be a terrible athlete and say, comfort's my priority. You're not going to be good. Just understand that. But you engage in all of this rigorous training so that you can win the crown. And, and we're well aware of this in our culture. We're so enamored with sports, aren't we? And so you, you, you I don't know if you do this. Sometimes I, I look at like the workout schedules of some of these athletes. It's crazy. I mean, their diets are affected. You got to eat the right foods at the right time. And to the exclusion of foods that won't fuel you the way that you ought to be fueled, right? There's all sorts of things that you you can't eat. It requires this intense um, physical exercise regimen. You ever watch how those bodybuilders get as big as they get? I mean, they basically eat, sleep, and exercise to the point where they get sick of eating. They have to consume so many calories. And so this is the, the life of an athlete. And the, the reality is that it requires so much of you physically that usually your career is really short, isn't it? You don't have long careers. It ends because you either ruin your body prematurely or you're just not able to, to maintain that level of discipline. This is just too much. They tend to go out in a blaze of glory. So the question is, why do they do this at all if it's so difficult? Well, the reason that they do it is because they do it for the prize. They do it for the crown. That's why they suffer as they do. And here's the thing. You can't cheat. You you can't take shortcuts. You can't say you did the training when in reality you didn't do the training because your performance is going to reveal that you didn't do it. And you can't take the performance-enhancing drugs. They're going to eventually find out that you did. And you can't rig the game, because if you do, you lose. And so Paul says, they do all of this, they play by the rules so they can win the prize. And and here's the, again, the comparison. This is to be an analogy for gospel ministry. This kind of discipline. And so gospel ministers must discipline themselves. They're to discipline themselves in their studies. Studying the the word in the original languages. Seeing what the saints who've gone before us have had to say about God's word. 
as we're studying it ourselves, so that they're always, as it were, looking over our shoulders. We're not ignoring what they had to say. They are to discipline themselves in their prayer lives. Prayer doesn't come easy. We all know that. It's not an option for a gospel minister not to pray. They're to discipline themselves in leading their families. We all have the temptation as men to come home after working and just what? I just want to veg out. just want to check out. just want to rest. You know, you know how hard my day was? That's not an option for a gospel minister. He needs to go home and serve his family. Take the mantle of responsibility that his wife's been carrying all day with discipline and nurturing the children and, and carry that for her. Leading the family in family worship. They're to discipline themselves in their pursuit of unbelievers. This is one of the things we sometimes bemoan as gospel ministers is we don't have the all-day access to unbelievers that we once did in our secular, if you will, employment. And so we have to be strategic to do the work of an evangelist, plan being around unbelievers, praying for them, thinking of ways that we can pursue them. And gospel ministers are to discipline themselves in the use of their time so that they make sure they're not serving themselves, but they're actually serving those whom Christ has entrusted to them. You get the idea. And just like the athlete, gospel ministers can't cheat in any of this. Because their perform- performance, it'll show up in how we live our lives before you. In how the word is ministered to you. We can't play fast and loose with God's word or the truth. And, and we can't engage in leading God's people in the worship of him in ways that he hasn't commanded in his word. That's not an option for us. And we can't manipulate and use people. Use you. In other words, they have to compete according to the rules that Christ has given them. So do you see what Paul is saying about pastoral ministry? The expectation is one of rigorous discipline and labor and suffering for Christ, for his church, and his gospel. So pastors, there's a couple of us in this room. That's what we ought to expect of ourselves. And church, brothers and sisters, that's what you ought to expect of us. Now, again, this immediately applies to gospel ministers, but it also applies to all of us equally. In the race that is the Christian life, we are to live as God has called us to in his word. We are to run according to the rules. And part of that, a big part of that, if not the lion's share of it, is to train ourselves as he calls us to. And how are we to train ourselves? We're to train ourselves by doing exactly what you're doing right now. Coming to corporate worship, when the saints are gathered to to hear the word proclaimed, to hear the Lord speak to his people as we sing, as we pray. And you're to do that with your families, to read the word and to pray with them. You're to do that alone with the Lord in private devotion. And the sad reality is we, we oftentimes feel like we have to suffer to discipline ourselves to do this. Not because those things are are difficult or suffering-worthy in themselves, but because of our own sinful, fallen hearts and inclinations that desire much lesser things, rather than to commune with and worship the living God. And, And that's how we run the race. That's how Jesus ran the race. That's how Paul ran the race. That's how Timothy ran the race. So, brothers and sisters, let us arm ourselves with the mindset of an athlete, ready to forego whatever we must 
and to train ourselves as God has commanded us to so that we are as fit as we can be to run the race. So we've seen we are to suffer as good soldiers and as competitive athletes. And finally, and this one will go quickly, Paul says that we are to suffer as a hard-working farmer. Look at verses 6 and 7 with me. It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So Paul's, Paul's final comparison here to pastoral ministry in the Christian life is farming. And if you think farming is difficult today, which it is, it was even more difficult back in the day, wasn't it? <laughs> Before the times of, of, of gas engines and electricity and the kind of irrigation that we have today, all the automation, we have a lot of things that make it easier and it's still difficult. Back then it was, it was extremely difficult. But think of the life of a farmer. He's up early and oftentimes has to stay up late. The job is constantly demanding of him. Why? Because the land constantly has needs, all sorts of needs. It needs to be plowed, or seeds need to be sown, or weeds need to be removed, or it's harvest time, so it's time to reap the harvest, or it's time to store the harvest. And on top of that, what's outside of their control? The ever-dreaded weather. What's it going to do? Too much rain? Too little rain. Frost that kills the plants? Diseases that infect the entire crop, not to mention bugs and other animals that want to eat your crops, all these pests. And then as if that weren't enough, then you've got the difficulty of just waiting, waiting for the crop to grow in a lot of ways outside of your control. That's a lot of hard, demanding work. And what Paul is saying here to Timothy and to us is that it's just like the hard work of a gospel minister. There are long hours in gospel ministry, early mornings, late nights, and there's always something in God's vineyard that needs tending to, isn't there? Always needs that people have. And, and there's so much outside of your control. The longer I'm in pastoral ministry, the more and more I realize how much is out of my control, most of it. And there are wolves, both within and without the church, who seek to kill and steal and destroy. The pastor must defend the sheep. And so he's got to be ready to do that. And then as we labor, we're well aware of the fact that we can't bring the increase. So we patiently wait as the Lord does what only he can do. Now, I don't mention all that as a complaint as one of your pastors. We love this and we wouldn't want to do anything else. And here's the thing. Much of this is also true of the Christian life in general, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, much of it is. It requires strain and struggle. And diligence. In many ways, the Christian life is like farming. And so if you, you have any illusions that the Christian life is one of ease, it's not. It, it's a rigorous life. One that we can't live in our own strength, only by God's strength. And yet notice why Paul says that all of that hard work is worth it. He says again in verse 6, It is the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Now, that word ought there might throw you for a bit of a loop. What is Paul saying? Is he saying, well, it ought to be this way, that the farmer ought to get the first share of the crops, but he doesn't. No, that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying literally in the Greek, it is inevitable, it's necessary, it's binding. 
that the hardworking farmer would get the first share of the crop. That's the way it works. In other words, Paul is once again showing us that the reward is worth the toil. It's the hardworking farmer who gets the big crop. It's the, the good soldier who conquers the enemy. And it's the competitive athlete who wins the crown. And you know, brothers and sisters, sometimes I think we grow weary in doing good and living the way we ought to because we lose sight of the prize. We lose sight of, of, of what awaits us. The fact that what awaits us is, is our triune God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, once we've finished the race, once the battle is done, once the harvest has been brought in, heaven awaits us. And so we've got to to not lose sight of that because the Lord rewards us with that, not ultimately because we've earned it, but because God has graciously empowered us to do good works and then he graciously lavishes us with rewards that are not commensurate with the work that we've done. In Christ, he covers all the the impurities, the, the sins, the fallenness and accepts it perfectly in him and then rewards us so, so graciously. That's how gracious our God is. And I don't know about you, but that makes me want to labor for him all the more. But you see, the only way we'll endure like this and be willing to suffer as we fight as soldiers and exercise as athletes and toil as farmers is if we are, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That's why Paul starts there. He's saying, Timothy, this call to suffering is a great calling, and it's impossible for you to do in your own strength, but you can do it in the grace that is in Christ Jesus if he is your strength. And really, since we began this second letter, hasn't that been the refrain of Paul again and again and again? Strong exhortation, do this, and strong encouragement in Christ. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for us as well. Because Jesus alone is the perfect soldier and athlete and farmer. And he's done that in our place. And he's died for all the ways that each and every one of us have failed in our callings as Christians. And because he is our substitute, he is also our example. We're united to him. And so we have the privilege of walking in his footsteps. And so by his grace, we can now follow him in his suffering. And we can fight as good soldiers, knowing confidently Christ is upholding us and he's won the battle. And we can train as competitive athletes, knowing that in Jesus we will finish the race that he himself has already completed. And we can toil as farmers, knowing the glory that awaits us. So brothers and sisters, let us together, by God's grace, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and be willing to suffer because that's the Christian life. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are thankful for your grace towards us. We know we don't deserve it. And we pray that we would understand that the Christian life in our own strength is impossible for us. This is a high calling. And yet by your grace, we can. So Turn our attention to your son, who is our substitute and our example. 
and keep us faithful to you and your gospel and living as you've commanded us to, proclaiming the good news to all until you come back. And we ask that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.